and welcome to another episode of Family Law and Lattes. I'm Melanie Batier-Samuel, Family Law Solicitor at MBS Family Law, and today I'm joined by Ian McArdle, a Family Law Barrister at Atlantic Chambers in Liverpool and Magdalen Chambers in Exeter. Prior to being called to the bar, Ian was a solicitor practicing all aspects of criminal law and children law. Admitted to the role in 2010 and being a member of the Law Society Children Panel since 2013, Ian practiced in Liverpool before moving to North Devon in 2014, where he worked in a niche award-winning practice specializing in all aspects of children law. A keen advocate, Ian acquired his higher rights of audience in 2015. Alongside his practice at the bar, Ian is currently undertaking a professional doctorate in which he is researching the issues of parental alienation in the family justice system. Ian has written on the topic with articles in Family Law Week and the Magistrates Association, as well as delivered training for a national training organization, which is handy, since today we are talking about parental alienation and in particular, the widely anticipated judgment handed down last February by the president in the case of Rhee C. on the issue of the instruction of experts in proceedings where there is an allegation of parental alienation. The particular focus of this judgment is not on the issue of parental alienation itself, but rather for the court to consider the instruction of unregulated psychologists as experts in the family court in general. Hello, Ian. Welcome to Family Law and Lattes. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, Melanie. Thanks for having me. Um, Today we're talking about parental alienation. Um, I'm going to say again, because we we had an episode earlier on in the year about this, but um, after the episode came out, you contacted me and asked me about a case that had recently, um, judgment had been brought down recently on this case. And we recorded the episode before judgment had come out. And we had a conversation about it over email. And I thought it'd be great to have you to come on and, and talk um, about what this case means and what's happened, um, because it's really important. And um, this is something that you specialize in. So we're going to start off by asking you to do a little bit of an intro about yourself, and then we're going to talk about this case. Um, so Ian, introduce yourself. Who are you? What do you do? So my name's Ian McArdle. I am a barrister I'm specializing in children law um, and domestic abuse work, primarily working from Atlantic Chambers in Liverpool. Um, but also a door tenant at Magdalen Chambers in Exeter. Um, I was called to the bar in 2019 um, after spending 10 years as a solicitor, um, during which time I practiced in crime um, and also in family. Okay. And... When I was when I was googling you, researching you, it was like there was so much about you. You have like a lot of stuff online. I'm sorry, but there was a lot of things out there. You also are. So we're talking about parental alienation. This is something that you're interested in, and we'll talk a little bit about it at the end of the episode. But you've been doing quite a lot of research into this. And when we chatted about this, you brought up this case, the case of Reese, which had come out um, not that long ago, and you felt it was important that we talk about this. So would you just briefly tell me why you think it's important we talk about it in a few in a few words, um, and then give me a little bit of background about the case, what happened? Yes. So just to, to, just to put it into context, alongside my professional practice, um, I am also undertaking a professional doctorate in legal practice. So it's, it's mm-hmm. akin to a PhD. Um, and my research topic is parental alienation in the family justice system. Um, it's something that I've been researching quite heavily since 2019. Um, and I'm at a stage now where I'm collecting data um, mm-hmm. and interviewing professionals involved in the family justice system 
about how they understand um, and identify managed cases um, where parental alienation is um, is alleged. So wh- whenever there's a case um, that comes out about parental alienation, it always um, sh- I always get interested by it. Yeah. I always read it. Um, I want to understand how the court approaches it. Yeah. Um, and the Reese case that was handed down in. February, I think, of this year, yeah. um, by the president, um, Sir Andrew McFarlane, um, created quite a lot of interest because it was featured quite heavily um, in the media. Um, I know that Hannah Sumners from The Guardian wrote a couple of articles um, late last year um, about the case, um, ultimately, that the, the, the president dealt with in Reese. Um, and the background to that really was... Um, a case where the court had relied upon expert evidence um, in the form of a psychologist. And the debate in court was ultimately what constitutes an expert and can the person who um, gave evidence to court to the court in Reese before it reached the president, um, could they properly be held out as an expert? Mm. Um, so the decision in Reese, although it, is labelled parental alienation. It, it primarily focuses upon the use of experts and and how the family justice system um, deems someone to be an expert. Um, the case, as I say, it attracted a lot of media um, attention, partly because of, well, mainly because of Hannah Sumner's articles, um, and certainly Twitter sphere just lit up. Yeah, I was going to um, say it, it, it really did blow up about it. Yeah. It did. It did. Um, and I, I think if you if you if you search for parental alienation on Twitter, it's a minefield anyway, and there's loads out there about it. Um, but certainly, this case sparked a, a lot of interest from all different quarters um, and had quite polarising views. Um, I know that the um, expert concerned was a, a lady called Melanie Gill. Um, she was the subject of quite a lot of, of fierce criticism. I think that's probably putting it a bit mildly Mm. um, about the role that she played and the evidence that she gave um, within these proceedings. So it ultimately went to uh, the High Court um, and because of this issue about experts and what should the family justice system consider to be an expert, um, it, it was passed on to the president for him to hand down this judgment. Okay, before we talk about the judgment, would you, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here, but would you give us, um, us listeners who don't necessarily deal with this level of, of parental alienation, this kind of technical aspect of it, a little bit of a, a reminder of what it is? Because it's a phrase that's bandied around all the time. And yeah, just like, what should we be thinking about? Well, it, it is a phrase that's bandied about all the time. Um and it is one that provokes a huge amount of, of um, debate and criticism and controversy. It's actually a concept that doesn't actually have an agreed definition. Okay. Um, and I think that's, yeah, it is. Um, and I think that's um, something that is, is often lost on yeah. people. Um, Kafkas have a working definition. Um, I don't, my own view is I don't think that that's particularly helpful. Um, it refers to psychological manipulation um, by one parent um, of, of the child mm-hmm. to essentially frustrate the relationship between that child um, and the other parent. Um, I consider that to be unhelpful because I think when, as soon as you start saying psychological manipulation, 
it, it arguably medicalizes um, the, the concept, um, which then gets us into a whole other ballpark of controversy um, and debate. Um, boiled down to, to it, it, it is my understanding of it and how I approach it is it's one parent who deliberately tries to frustrate the relationship between the child and the other parent. It, it is something that happens um, or can happen within separated families more often, but also within intact families mm-hmm. uh, as well, um, where a, a child can be made to feel that they have to choose who is the preferred parent. Um, and it is something that is really difficult for the family court to grapple with um, because it's not often that allegations of parental alienation are raised on their own. There are normally other um, mm. red flags that the family court has to deal with. So um, domestic abuse is the is right. the key one and one that we probably see more and more in practice. Um, but other, other safeguarding issues, mental health, um, drug abuse, substance misuse, those kind of things um, okay. can also feature. So it's not often that you, you will get a case that is purely and simply about alienation with no other red flags. Yeah, I mean, every time I've I've heard it, and I hear it more and more, um, mm-hmm. I, I first started hearing it when I was dealing with my French clients, and they would talk about, not the term, but the, the concept of, you know, mm-hmm. one parent is purposefully alienating the other a lot. And then uh, over time, it's become... Um, something I hear more of with my English-based clients. Um, but it's never the sole reason. It's always this and this and this has happened. Oh, and then this is what's happening as well. And and when you talk about it at court, I very rarely have heard, and, and this may just be me because of the kind of cases I have, but I very rarely have um, th- those two words written down. It's always kind mm-hmm. of an explanation of a pattern and this is what has happened as a consequence. But there's always... Um, some sort of abuse or violence or or uh, mental health issues that that is the prevalent thing and the court very rarely looks specifically at the parental alienation aspect um they'll look more about how to deal with the other aspects and protect the child in regards to that or, or the other parties or whatever but yeah so i agree yeah. it's it must be difficult to grapple with um specifically and i think it's it's there's a difficulty in grappling with it because there is no common definition there's no accepted definition about it everyone has different ideas about what it is um you google parental alienation and uh, you know on google obviously um there will be a list of people who hold themselves out to be experts about it um charities who all have their own narrative um, and all have their own objectives and so my my experience and my view is that that creates the controversy it perpetuates it it makes it more difficult um and also it means that the court then struggles to actually deal with it in a consistent and focused way and so this case of Reese, when they started looking at the expert what happened what what did the the court decide well the the so the case concerned two children, um, and by the time that the president handed down his decision, those children were aged 13 and 11, uh, and they'd been um, subject to proceedings since around 2014, um, I think it was. Wow. That's um, the majority lot, of their life. Yeah, so a, a long time. Um, there'd been short breaks between the proceedings, I think, but that you know, that there'd been proceedings ongoing. Um, and... Essentially, um, there was there was provision made for um, for interim contact, and uh, the the recorder at a first instance 
and directed a psychiatrist or child psychologist to undertake an assessment of the family. Um, and that was a joint instruction. And the um, I think it's at that point, I think there was some prevarication about what expert and who it was going to be. But uh, the, the, Melanie Gill was the mm-hmm. was the expert who was ultimately um, appointed um, and undertook that um, that that assessment. Her CV it, it transpired had never been submitted to the court, um, and the court order um, was just recorded that this was the agreed expert um, referred to as, as Doctor Gill. I think within the court order, when actually she wasn't a doctor, okay. um, and. Melanie Gill's report essentially um, was the plank upon which the court directed um, a change of residence, removing the children from their mother's care um, and, and directed that there should be no contact between the mother and the children. Oh, wow. Um, That's a pretty extreme report. Yeah. Um, and that was at an interim stage and limited contact was was given to, to mum mm-hmm. between with the children pending the final hearing. Um and so the the final hearing took place. The children were going to be living with with dad, um, and there was um, an order that suspended contact between mum and children to allow them to fully settle in the care of dad. Um, and the mother applied for permission to appeal mm. from that decision, um, and. It was at that point it went to Mr. Justice Peel, um, who refused permission um, initially, um, went back to the trial judge, um, and ultimately there was an application to reopen the finding of fact and welfare determination before the trial judge. Um, There was uh, an expert application made by mum to support um, her application to reopen the findings. And the um the court refused i think to allow her to reopen it and it was against that decision that the mother um appealed so she was basically saying i have another i have a new expert report or i want to be challenging this expert report yes and she she appealed on the basis that the judge was wrong to determine the mum's application um without expert evidence sure fair um, enough and raised issues about the role of, of Miss Gill. Um, that's okay. a brief summary. Um, I'm not saying it's a verbatim summary or anything, nope. but that's basically a sum- my understanding of, of how things developed. Um, permission to appeal um, was it was granted at that point again by Mr Justice Peel. Um, and, but, but it was on the grounds that, that there was some other compelling reason for that um, appeal to be heard. Um, and it was that it was in the public interest for the court to consider the instruction of unregulated psychologists as experts in the family court in general, and Miss Gill's instruction and role in this case in particular. Um, Miss G- Melanie Gill is not named at all in this judgment. She's referred to as Ms. A. Um, I deduce that it's Melanie Gill because of the media attention that surrounded this case, um, where she was she was named, um, and that appeal. Um, it involved the Association of Clinical Psychologists um, and they intervened, although I think they only provided written submissions during the hearing um, rather than actually being heard. Um, and the the judgment, as, as I say, was, was handed down uh, in February. It doesn't tell us anything that's particularly groundbreaking. 
Um, it, it doesn't say that you know, experts have to fall into a certain category. And the long and short of it is that it's up to the family court when dealing with an application for expert um, assessment to be satisfied on a case-by-case basis that the person who is proposed to undertake the assessment or undertake the work is suitably um, and appropriately qualified for the task in hand. So it, it doesn't seem it doesn't seek to straightjacket the family court um, in only being able to choose experts who are set, you know, have a certain level of qualification. Um, it affords the family court that wide discretion that it enjoys um, in respect of so other matter, so other many matters um, to, to look at each individual expert in the context of that individual case. So is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Because it could be that it's a good thing because it allows them to say, well, okay, you may not be, uh, you may not be like the top of whatever with all the requirements, but you've done enough research in this to be classed as an expert compared to others in the profession who may not have. So we're going to be flexible in being able to pick this person. But the flip side is, how do you know that this person has done or is going to be providing the best? Or is this actually how experts are in any way? You know, you you pick an expert that's on the list, but are they considered to be the correct experts? I, I, well, I, and, and that's that's the point, isn't it? I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of the family courts having a, a wide discretion. Um, every family is unique. Every situation that a family faces is unique in the context of that particular family. If we had a situation where the family court was straight jacketed and was only able to choose um, and benefit from assistance from a, a defined category, then that arguably doesn't reflect the flexible nature, the dynamic nature of, of, of family life. So I think the family court needs to be able to adapt to, to each family. Otherwise, it can't properly serve, surely, the society that it's there to, to serve. Um, but... I do think that the family court needs to properly scrutinise these CVs. Well, that was going to be the, the next experts. thing. That, that's a huge, it was a huge, it's a big responsibility being reinforced on the judge's shoulders that they can't just say, okay, you provided this expert, fine, I'll go with this one. Do they then have to go out and do their own research or do they have to say, I can't do anything until I've seen expert, you know, expert CVs, expert testimonials or whatever? I think it's it's a case of having a properly detailed um, CV, and the president does go on to deal with this in his judgment. Um, but that the CV should be, you know, complete, listing all the qualifications, summarising their experience, detailing any um, professional bodies um, who regulate them, mm-hmm. who they're a member of. Um, obviously, some of those regulations, or a lot of those regulatory bodies, are seen as a bit of a kite mark uh, of assurance that that person is properly qualified, is properly sure. regulated, um, and that can have consequences um, for, for breaching relevant codes of conduct. So I think that the court needs to be a bit more mindful of scrutinising the CV and being satisfied, because ultimately you know, it, it might well be an agreed instruction, but the um, the final say is the courts. Yes, of course. And it's up to the court to be satisfied that that person is actually an expert um, in the issue, about the issue that the court is ultimately going to have to determine. Um, so the court really needs to be the the arbiter of whether that person is a qualified expert, is suitable for that case. And it can only do that by being given sufficient information um, within the CV there will be, you know, the, the cases um, 
that require experts who are well known to the court and probably don't need a CV. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can think of a, of a handful of experts who you go in front of many judges in the land and say, this person um, mm-hmm. is an expert in this. And they will accept that at face value because they've had personal experience or they know of them. Um, but that can sort of lead into bad habits of just allowing things to go through on the nod. Yeah. You know, oh, we know that expert or somebody knows them and they're okay. Um, it's ultimately the court that's got to be satisfied, in my view, that this person is um, is, is the expert and so the right we, expert. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and what I'm thinking is, does this, A, mean that we're going to have judges, whether it's a case of parental alienation or other, whenever we're looking at an expert being a lot more thorough in, in, in looking at those CVs and questioning the experts because they're going to be thinking we have this duty, we need to be really confident that we are going to, you know, nothing's going to fall back on us. And does this mean that a lot more people, perhaps as against in person, perhaps other solicitors will think I can just make an, I can just try making an appeal on the grounds of, I don't think the solicitor, the, the judge really weighed down the, the appropriateness of this mm-hmm. expert does this open up a can of worms or, or does it make, or does it tighten up how the court works and therefore should be reassuring the court users? I, I think it, it, it tightens up um, how the court is approaching it. And of course this, this judgment was handed down um, several weeks after the president had issued his view from the chamber in November, um, where he reinvigorated the public law mm. outline in public law children cases that mm. essentially seeks to, um, reinforce the need for experts only to be appointed where it's necessary for the just resolution of the proceedings. Um, So I think you've got the president with his public law hat on um, saying how the family court needs to really drill down and make sure that experts are only appointed where it is necessary, Um, directing um, people to part 25 to section 13, seven of the children and families act um, and those checklists and making sure that judges go through that checklist mm. and deal with applications fully. And actually, I think that all this judgment does, um, when looking at it through the through the prism of an expert application, is seek to focus the court's um, ability to sure. properly scrutinise that application and properly mean properly ensure that it is it's necessary, it's proportionate, it will assist the court in furthering the overriding objective. And the court can be satisfied that this person, this expert, will bring something to the table um, that will assist the court um, in order to to make the the best decision it can. So, I would like to know what this means for lawyers, both uh, the ones that do private work and the ones that do public work. Does it mean that we have to act differently? Does it mean that there is something that we have to be doing? Does it mean that it's giving us a get-out-of-jail-free card? If we don't like the expert, we can just appeal it. W- what does it mean for us? My and, own by, view, and by lawyers, I mean solicitors and barristers. I mean everybody yeah. that's doing this. Yeah, I think my, my own view is that this judgment doesn't actually tell us anything new. Mm. It, it doesn't change the law. It, it doesn't change um, how we should be doing things. It effectively just brings a spotlight on how the court and us as practitioners should be dealing with applications for expert assessments uh, and that we should be making sure that there is a proper CV, that this that the, the person who is proposed um, to act as an expert is sufficiently qualified um, and that they are able to assist the court 
I don't think that this judgment is particularly groundbreaking. It does, as I say, it doesn't change the law in my view. It just brings into sharper focus the need to follow the law um, and apply the law and reinforce the need for that for, for the court to undertake that function. The court's function is not something that can be delegated to us as practitioners. We're there to assist the court. We're there to present a case. And we're there to argue for or against the case. But ultimately, it's the judge um, and it's the court's decision whether to allow an expert or not. And I think this just reminds practitioners and judges alike of what of what hoops they need to jump through um, before they should be allowing an expert. Yeah, and, and as you said, this was a case where it was an area that wasn't easily definable. It wasn't an area that's got lots of very clear guidance or, or very clear mm-hmm. definitions. So if you're dealing with something which is very clear, very obvious, has a lot of uh, recognized professionals, it's going to be easier to, to jump over that hurdle. But if you are mm-hmm. looking at an area where perhaps it's a brand new area, perhaps something that hasn't been researched very well, perhaps something like parental alienation that's got no real definition, um, then you're going to have a a, a bit more of a, a difficult um, a situation trying to convince a judge to go for one expert or another, or actually could mean that as, as as the lawyers in the case, you're trying to argue which which person is best to to advise on this, and without really having any measure of, you know, how do you know that this is the best expert in this? So it's it's going to be in, yeah, it's interesting. It's it's something it you think about. Uh, no, and I think you know we we don't. And I know you, I don't think you you do public law, but necessarily within public law. Oh God, sphere. I dabbled in it many years ago. It was not not for me. I'm I'm not that. I don't have that temperament. No, but but there is you know if you have a non accidental injury in a child, you know that there is a checklist of experts that the court is probably going to require yeah. assistance, and you are on some solid ground yeah. in making that application to the court. Um, parental alienation, my view is it's it's really different. It's really different yeah. because there is not that agreed definition. There is not that agrees or consistent approach. There is, um, you know, there are people out there who think that it's not their job to to deal with parental alienation and farm it out to a psychologist who can diagnose and treat parental alienation, um, and then let them come back to court and, and effectively give the court a, a complete picture. Sure, um, and I, I think that's why. Certainly, experts within parental alienation is is fertile ground for this kind of debate, um, and that's you know, it's an interesting area. It's an area that's not going to go away. It's an area that takes up a huge amount of court time um, in family courts up and down the country at all different levels, um, and I think this is perhaps very useful uh, in that it gives it it gives a voice to the Association of Clinical Psychologists who, um, without wanting to seem smug, um, are saying what I've been saying for the last couple of years, uh, and that is that forget the label, focus on the behaviour. Mm. And that's something that the family court is is much more able to do. Um, and I use the analogy of domestic abuse cases. They're frequently linked. They frequently come hand in hand. Yeah. Um, how often do we go into court, Melanie, and, to, and raise allegations of domestic violence or domestic abuse to be met with the question, what is domestic abuse? Yeah. What is domestic violence? We don't because we are so used to dealing with it. Every practitioner, every judge knows what it is, yeah. knows what the behaviours are. It's much more tangible. Yeah. Um, 
you go into court and say parental alienation and there's a lot of head scratching and people are then well what is it what's going on what do we need to do yeah well you, you just deal with it in the same way that you would deal with a, a domestic abuse you know what, what behaviors are there who's who's the perpetrator um, and what effect is that having and almost use the toolkit that we've got in practice direction 12j as a bit of a blueprint as a bit of a guide as to you know how should the court be approaching these cases yeah that makes um, sense I'm not saying that they're the same at all because they're not. The causes and effects can be entirely different. Um, but I think when we are still getting bogged down in the label and what it is, we are going to continue to have these um, issues about experts and delegating the court's function and the court's responsibility to an expert. I personally don't think that that's helpful. Um, and it's certainly not going to be helpful to try and assist the family court getting through the quagmire of cases because alienation cases, they're not quick. No. They take ages. They take years sometimes. And you've seen a VC, you know, that, that those poor children have been in proceedings since 2014, on and off. Yeah, but um, still, it's, it's, it's been ongoing. It means all, yeah. And in the background, you've had all this other stuff to be dealing with, no doubt, with the lawyers getting involved and who else. But from the kids' perspective, you know, they, yeah. they have spent their life in and out of court proceedings, although they're not going to court, Um it doesn't exactly promote a harmonious co-parenting mm. relationship because although the family court is meant to be an inquisitorial, inquisitorial court, the reality is it's not. The, the, the system is pegged to peg mum and dad against each other. It's It's got that adversarial um, air to it. Um, so those poor kids, you know, must have had a horrendous childhood um, at times, not all the time, but most of the time. Um, and the sad thing is they're not the only ones. Yeah. Well, normally I ask at my end of my episode to have a, a few hints and tips, but I think you've just given us quite a few hints and tips. <laughs> so I'm not going to ask that. What I will ask is if we have a few minutes, would you be willing to briefly touch on what you're looking at? And if you need anybody to get involved, you can do a call out and ask people for the information you're looking for. This yes. could be your platform. So- I'm, I'm really grateful. Thank you. So um, I, I'm doing, I, I refer to it as a PhD because some people don't really understand the distinction between the professional doctorate and the PhD and the outcome mm-hmm. is the same. Um, and my research is looking at how professionals work within the family justice system, identify and manage cases where, where allegations are made of parental alienation. Um, I'm looking for barristers of all levels of call and seniority, solicitors to include paralegals as well, social workers who work for local authorities and CAFCAS officers um, to participate in a short interview via Teams, um, completely anonymous, um, to share their views and how they approach these cases. Um, As I say, fully confidential, fully anonymous, um, to try and gain some understanding of how the agencies who feed into the family court and the family justice system understand these concepts and understand how the court should or could manage them better to achieve those better outcomes for children. Um, although, you know, I've, I've said several times during this podcast that the judge is the ultimate arbiter. Um, we both know Melanie from doing the job that we do. How many issues are resolved by us banging our respective clients' heads together yeah, I was to say, outside, outside the courtroom? We, we do a lot of work beforehand, that's true. We do. And a lot of the work, you know, that often goes unrecognized 
takes place away from the courtroom, whether that be mediation, whether that be pre-hearing discussions. Um, and the, those who are given advice at the initial stages or before the court hearing have a really important role to play in what case is then presented to court. Yeah. And it's for that reason that my research is focusing on those individuals, um, because ultimately it's those who are the gatekeepers in a way of the information that is placed before the court and the spin that's put on it. Um, so yeah, I'm looking for volunteers. It'll be a short teams interview. Um, as I say, anonymous, confidential. Um, the only person, the only person that will know the pe- people's identities is me. Um, I think even by the time my, my university supervisors see it, they are all fully anonymized um, just to try and help um, and create something that will be worthwhile going forwards and help management of this this issue because it's not going away. I understand. Well, how do you want them to contact you? Is there a website? Is um, there an email? I can put the details so- in the bio at the end, but let me know. I'm happy for my email address um, okay. to go in. My, my chamber's email address is probably easier. It's Ian McArdle, all one word, at atlanticchambers.co.uk. Um, people can contact me or, or via there. And, and obviously, I, I'm I'm on Twitter, um, mm-hmm. Ian J. McArdle. Um, and people can contact me on there and probably look me up on LinkedIn as well. Perfect. Um, as you said, you Google me and you will find me. Yeah, uh, yes, very much so, <laughs> yes. It was very yeah. easy. Yeah. Ian, thank you so much for taking the time to to discuss this with me. It was very interesting. Um, Thanks very yeah, much, Melanie. I, for I could have me. gone down a rabbit hole and carried on asking you questions, but half an hour. I know you have to rush off to court, so thank you for taking the time to do this. And um, yes, thank you very much. I'm oh really- no, wait, hold on. I forgot the most important question. I always ask this to all of my uh, all of my guests. How could I have forgotten this? The very last question, and it's 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 a really important one. What is your favorite coffee drink? I am, um, it's a sugar-free, skin, um, sugar-free vanilla, skinny latte, um, ideally from Starbucks with blonde roast um, with seven shots of syrup. Oh my goodness. Okay, I'm going to try that. Shots of syrup, the seven <laughs> shots of syrup doesn't add any sweetness to it. There's a, skill, there's, there's a reason for it. And that's because I'm a, you know, I'm a real nerd. When the espresso is brewed, apparently, if you leave it for too long, it goes bitter. And mm. some baristas don't put it in, in straight away. So the extra shots of syrup take away the bitterness of the coffee if it's been so, left too long. So sugar-free, seven shots of vanilla, um, latte, skinny blonde latte. roast. Skinny latte. Okay, I'm, yes. I'm going to try that. I'm, I always, yeah, I, every you, time you I will. hear like a, a weird and wacky one from my guests, I'm like, I'm going to try that and see what it is. Thank you. Yeah, it's a bit of a mouth. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, but yeah, the seven shots of syrup don't add anything to it. Excellent. It's I love just a high bitterness. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ian. Thanks, and have have a good Thanks, day. Thanks, Bye. You too. Take care. Bye bye. For more information on anything you've heard on the podcast or to appear on the show as a guest, please email me at familylawandlattes at gmail There will be a new episode shortly. Until next time. <laughs>